You're listening to the Quietly Ambitious podcast, and this episode is one from before we rebranded. So if you hear references to Creatively Human, that is why. I hope you enjoy the episode. You're listening to Creatively Human with honest conversations about what matters to us and how it really feels to build an online business, put our work out into the world and make an impact in our own unique way. I'm your host, Ruth Poundwhite, business mentor to heart-led creatives. I'm so excited to start sharing the amazing interviews with you this series. But the first interview is with Sarah Von Bargen and it was a great one because she is someone who has been blogging for a long time. She started her blog back in 2008 and I think I actually started reading it back then as well. Um, She's stuck at it consistently. She's managed to monetize a blog that doesn't have a traditionally defined niche and she has all sorts of wisdom about what it takes to stick at something for so long, how to get more done, how to feel happy about the way that you're spending money and much more. So I hope that you'll really enjoy this episode and thank you for joining me in this second series of the podcast. My name is Sarah Von Bargen. I am a writer, a blogger, and an online educator. And my elevator pitch is that I help people spend their time, money, and energy on purpose. Oh, I love that you have an elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been in this game for a long time, so I've had to sort of hone my marketing. Yep, yep. That's something that I think a lot of us find hard. A lot of people who like blog and do stuff online. <laughs> yeah, oh for sure. And I mean, I I only I mean, very recently for pro- like maybe like in the last two months, like that has been my elevator pitch. Previ- and I've been doing this for, I've been self-employed for eight years. So there was a lot of like, well, um, you know, so, I mean, I guess I help, you know. So, <laughs> so if anyone listening doesn't have their elevator pitch yet, that's okay. It's totally normal. It took me a long time to figure it out. Yep, yep. And I'd love to hear a bit more about the history. Like, how did you get started? Because you have been doing it for a long time. And I yes. actually used to read your blog ages ago I've been reading it all this time so I'm like I'm really happy to talk to you but I'd love to hear a bit about the history oh my gosh well well so I started blogging 10 years ago which is just crazy in internet terms I mean that I'm like truly an internet dinosaur I mean people have been reading me since middle school high school and now they're married with kids um (laughs) and I got started because I had been living abroad I'd been living abroad for seven years um and I moved back to America and I had um a pretty hard time reacclimating, honestly. Um, and I needed a creative, creative outlet. Um, I have been writing, I've been getting paid to write since I was 20, but it had been sort of like a side hustle or, you know, whenever opportunities presented themselves. Um, and I also have a background in marketing and advertising. And, and I'd also been reading blogs for a long time. So I sort of knew that this was something that I had a skill set for. And also there was a very specific sort of blog that I wanted to read that I I couldn't find. I couldn't find the sort of blog that I wanted to read. So I figured, you know, I know how to do this stuff. I know how to write. I understand how to market myself. I'm just going to write the blog that I want to read because, I mean, hopefully other people will read it. But even if they don't, I'm creating stuff that I wish was out there. I'm having conversations that I wish other people were having. So I started it. And I kept at it for clearly years and years and, you know, slowly have built um, a really committed audience, which is what happens, you know, 
when when anyone does anything for 10 years very um, regularly, you it is it is very likely that you will find success if you just keep doing something over and over for a decade. Mm hmm. And it sounds simple, but actually I think it isn't it isn't mm. easy to stick to something for that long, yes. especially I guess in the early days when you don't know what's going to happen, you don't know if you're going to earn money from it, you don't mm -hmm. know if it's worth it. Mm -hmm. So I think it is an achievement despite the fact that it sounds simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think most things in life are, they're simple, but they're not easy. Like we mm -hmm. all know, yeah. we all probably know what we need to do to have a successful career to have a happy relationship to have a healthy body like if, if we're honest with ourselves we know that in order to do those things we need to you know communicate effectively with our partner we need to move our bodies we need to eat fruit and vegetables we need to go to networking events we need to turn things on, on time we all know that um but just because we know it and just because the, the solution is simple doesn't mean it's easy yep yep i love that distinction between simple and easy and have there been times along the way where you have felt like packing it in yeah I've never I've never you know truly like you know my hand has never hovered over like the delete the whole blog button or anything but I've certainly had times when I have felt um discouraged um just like anybody you know I can fall into the comparison trap and especially when you've been doing something for so long it can feel hard when it when it appears that other people are um achieving things that you would like to achieve or um, reaching milestones that you would like to reach. And from where you sit, it, it appears that they haven't been doing it as long as you. So, I mean, there have certainly, I've struggled, you know, with my own, you know, envy and my own jealousy over perceived success. Um, there have also, because um, for a long time, I um, also made money by ghostwriting stuff for other people. And so, um, like I'm, I'm a good writer and I write quickly, but there's like a limited amount of like writing juice I have. Um, and so there was a time when I was writing, I want to say like 12 blog posts a month for other people in addition to my own blog posts. And when I was doing that, it was really hard to create quality content for myself while also creating it for other people. Um, so that certainly was a time when I thought like, I don't know if I can keep doing this, but and eventually I made the decision to, to drop the client work rather than drop my own work. Yeah. I think that's something that it's, it's a struggle for so many of us um, when we're, we're trying to get something started for ourselves or keep something running for ourselves, mm -hmm. but we have to like pay the bills at the same yeah. time. Oh, absolutely. And there comes a point when you've got that choice to make. Mm -hmm. And how was it for you when you made that decision to stop doing the client work? Um, well, I did. And what I would recommend to anybody who is doing something similar is it's not like on Monday, I decided I'm not working with clients anymore. And then on <laughs> Friday, they were all fired. It was it was I think it was like a three or four month transition. And so I, you know, I told them all like, hey, I'm not going to be ghostwriting anymore. Um, if you would like me to ghostwrite stuff sort of so you have a backlog, you can do that now. Um, so I worked really hard and brought in, you know, a ton of money in those three months so that that money would sustain me for the coming periods of time when I was no longer doing client work. Um, I also started um, creating and, and beta testing online courses during that same time so that I could sort of like while I was dialing down the client work, I could start like turning up the online coursework. And with all of my clients, I was very open about what was going on. And I, I told them, you know, this is something I'm trying. And I, and I said pretty point blank, like, 
this might not work. <laughs> and in three mm-hmm. months, I might be back, you know, writing for you. Um, and because I was a hard worker and I was a, I was a good vendor for them. They were all like, Oh my gosh, please tell me if you ever start ghostwriting again, because I love working with you. So I was, I was very strategic about it, you know, so I made for sure that I had other, um, I was creating another income stream to replace that one. And I didn't burn any bridges and I'm still in contact with all of those clients. So should I be in a situation where I could, or would be interested in ghostwriting again, I am 90% sure I could go back to any of those people um, and start writing for them again. Mm-hmm. Before you did make that decision, would you say that your ghostwriting was a sort of way to monetize your blog? Would people like come and read what you wrote and you'd get clients that way? And yes. was that what enabled you to keep your blog going? Yes. And I also, um, a lot of, and just like with any, with any vendor or contractor, so much of it is word of mouth. Like, um, mm-hmm. you know, one client knows another one and they refer their friends to me. My assistant who I love and I'm obsessed with her entire client roster are people who are my friends that I've referred to her. Um, So just like with anything, when you're good at what you do, your clients like you and they tell their friends about you. And what was it like when you made that decision then from moving from ghostwriting, you had to figure out how to make the blog like a full-time income and start monetizing it with courses. Like how did you come to that decision? Well, it was mostly another thing that happened was I had ghostwritten um, a book for a client and I had not negotiated the price, what I charged correctly. That is not my client's fault. That's totally my fault. Mm-hmm. I had not negotiated it correctly. Um, and so I was wildly underpaid for the work that I did. Um, again, not the client's fault, totally my fault. Um, and the book became as an Amazon bestseller. And I also, for that same client, again, wildly undercharging, um, ghost wrote a bunch of articles that appeared in very high profile magazines and websites. And I think that was a moment, you know, like seeing that book on the Amazon bestseller list, seeing those articles under somebody else's name, you know, in really big name websites, it was sort of a moment where I was like, Oh my gosh, like I want this for myself. You know, I want, I want my own name as a byline on L.com. I don't want to write words for somebody else and charge them like $200. Um, And again, it is totally not the client's fault. It is totally my fault. So I would say that was sort of the turning point where I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Or if I'm going to do it, I'm going to charge enough that it's worth it. Like I'm going to charge way more if I'm (laughs) going to be ghostwriting an Amazon bestseller. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love how you bring up the charging thing because I think so many of us undercharge. And I used to do ghostwriting as well. I charged so little that I just literally burnt myself out yeah. writing all the time. Yeah, yeah. But so that was the turning point for me. And when I actually did it, like it was a little bit scary, but because I had um, been so strategic about creating other um, income streams, it wasn't that scary. And also because I had done, I had this huge, Um, because I'd worked so hard for three months with my clients, I had a lot more money than usual in my bank account. So I wasn't particularly nervous about it. Um, and in terms of figuring out what people wanted, I mostly just looked at, um, what are the things that people always ask me about? Like, what are the things that I get emails about all the time that I get DMS about all the time? And what are the blog posts that have been, um, most successful? And also, um, what is something that I actually want to teach about? Like, obviously, I could create a course about, you know, content marketing or or copywriting or working with clients, but those are not topics that particularly like 
you know, light my fire. Like, yes, I know about mm-hmm. them, but there are other people who know about those topics who are passionate about them. And I am I am not that person. I'd love to know a bit more about how you came up with this topic about talking about money and how it like led on from everything you had been blogging about before that. Um, well, so I would say like I never particularly thought about the way that I managed money. I didn't think that anything I was doing was particularly noteworthy or different. Mm-hmm. Um I was just navigating money in a way that came naturally to me, that worked for me, and to a certain extent, and to a certain extent, had been modeled by my own parents and my upbringing. Um, and just as a background, I, when I started Yes and Yes, I was an ESL teacher at a nonprofit. I was making sixteen dollars an hour um, with a master's degree and all the debt that goes with an American undergraduate and master's. Mm-hmm. Um, degrees. And I lived by myself. So I didn't have a roommate. I lived by myself in a pretty nice neighborhood. I didn't have any credit card debt. I paid my school loans every month. I still found time to time and money to travel. And I didn't get any financial support from my parents or a partner. Um, So that was sort of like my situation when I was blogging. And when I started Yes and Yes, I didn't talk about money at all. But I would, you know, share photos of my apartment and share photos of outfits and and trips that I took. And after I think it was about two and a half years into Yes and Yes, I quit my teaching job um, to travel for 11 months with money that I had saved while making $16 an hour. And again, this just this I didn't think this was noteworthy. This was just what I did. And I heard through the grapevine um, that a friend of a friend did not believe that it was financially possible for me to do these things. And he thought that I had a trust fund. Um, and he, he thought that's the only way that I could possibly do these things. And so my parents were career public school teachers. They worked in a low income school district. So there, there is no trust fund. Um, but when I heard that, it sort of like made me realize like, wow, if people, if strangers look at my life and think that I have a trust fund, I must be managing my money and spending it in in a in a way that's pretty noteworthy or unusual if it's making people think this way. And so that was what sort of planted the seed for me that maybe I, I navigated this stuff differently than other people. Um, so I started to write a little bit more about sort of my philosophy around money and spending and saving and earning and people really reacted well to it. I got tons of emails about it. Anytime I wrote about it, um, I got tons of comments. Um, And so it seemed like it was a pretty easy, it was an obvious choice. And also when I started reading personal finance stuff, I realized that nobody was talking about it the way that I was talking about it. It was all incredibly dry and very sort of numbers-based and very... Um, I want to say almost like deprivation based, you know, it was a lot of like cut coupons, don't watch cable. No, you can never have a latte and nobody ever examined like, why are you buying these things to begin with? Do you really want that? What makes you happy? And, you know, like, does your spending align with your values and your happiness? Nobody talked about that stuff. People just talked about like interest rates. Um, But the fact is, if you're buying stuff you don't need, Um, and you're overspending, like no amount of coupons can save you. Um, So it was sort of just a slow realization that the way I thought about this stuff was different from from other people. And the way I talked about it could be helpful because it was sort of filling a need and filling a hole 
in the, I guess, personal finance space. Yeah. And I love the way that it kind of, it was something that I'm guessing when you like started writing your blog and all of that, you never thought that that would be the thing. No. But it's like, it just goes to show, doesn't it? Like, firstly, the things that you take for granted that just come naturally to you are the things that other people want to hear from you and like pay you to tell them yes yeah and just like listening to the feedback you get from people and what they what they want from you and it's it's like really interesting to like follow that Mm -hmm, absolutely and I would say something that is a lesson that I'm still learning and that anyone listening should know is it is it is very easy to discount your knowledge and it's Mm -hmm. very easy to like believe that something that's obvious to you is not obvious to other people. Like, so my, both of my most popular courses, Bank Boost and Habit School, I almost didn't release them because I felt like, oh God, this is so obvious. Mm -hmm. Like this is like, to me, it felt like it was almost condescending to talk about this stuff. But every single time I run those classes, every single time I talk about that stuff, people tell me it is literally life-changing. These things that I think like, should I even say this? Like people are going to roll their eyes when I tell them about this. And every single time I talk about it, people are like, oh my gosh, you blew my mind. So Mm -hmm. if you're listening, whatever the thing is that you think is so obvious, it's not. There are hundreds of thousands of people out there who need you to tell them that incredibly obvious thing. Oh, I love it. I love that. And also it sort of comes down to money in a sense of sometimes we think that if we're going to earn money from something, it has to be like really hard. And um, Mm -hmm. actually, I'm not saying it's like necessarily easy to take what you know and package it and sell it and stuff, but it is easy in the sense that it's what comes naturally. And it's sort of hard Mm -hmm. to let yourself believe that sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like we have, we have all been raised myself very much included to believe that, that, things need to be hard or arduous to be worth it. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to know a bit more about your money philosophy. Yes. Yeah. Well, so I have two courses, put your money where you're happy is, which is the sort of like deeper emotional, Mm -hmm. psychological stuff. And then I also have one called bank boost, which is a little bit more nitty gritty. Mm -hmm. Um, But the philosophy that unites them is that um, a lot of us have spent a lot of time, energy, and money pursuing a version of happiness that we haven't necessarily taken time to examine. Um, And I think we've all, myself included, we've all done the thing where we chase X, Y, or Z, and then we get there and we're like, oh, this is not what I expected. You know, like, oh, you know, like I want a house in this zip code. I want, you know, a 2019 car. I want to vacation at this resort during this time of year. I want this piece of jewelry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then we get it and we realize it wasn't what we thought it would be and it doesn't make us happy. So a lot of it comes to number one, figuring out what makes you happy. Number two, figuring out where your money is going because what actually makes you happy and where your money is going very, very frequently do not align. Um, And then number three, putting in the work to correct that, to make for sure that your money is actually bringing you happiness, that it's aligned, that your spending is aligning with your values. It's super common for people to say, you know, spending time with friends and family makes me happy. Travel makes me happy. And then when we look through our bank statements or our credit card statements, we see that we've spent, you know, maybe like a thousand dollars on travel over the course of the year, yet we've somehow spent like $4,000 on throw pillows and makeup. (laughs) Yeah. And I was thinking about this and it's kind of like a parallel to running your own business as well because I feel I'm guessing if you this is the stuff you teach about money then this is the kind of philosophy you must approach your business with as well like thinking about what really matters to you because it's really easy to get carried away thinking you have to do things a certain way 
And mm-hmm. I mean, it's all areas of life, really, but I'm just focusing on business for the purposes of this podcast. And just, yeah, bringing it back to like, what really actually matters to you? And like, what are your values? Oh, absolutely. And and like, I do a lot of things in my business that are quote unquote wrong. Like there are <laughs> many, many things that I do in my business that any online business coach will, I, I know, I can give you a list of all the things that I do <laughs> wrong. Like I, I do one-on-one coaching, which is not scalable. Yep. I run my courses live. Um, which means that it's not truly passive income. Um, I price my courses in such a way that they're very accessible mm-hmm. and people constantly, constantly tell me to char- to double, triple, quadruple the prices. Um, and I do all of those things because it's important to me to, to help people and to create products that are actually accessible. Like if you have issues with money, you cannot afford a $1,500 course about manifesting more money. And if you bought it, that's probably why you have money issues in the first place. <laughs> So like, and my, um, bank boost is, uh, $55, which is nothing. And even at $55, there are people who can't afford it. Like I have alumni who sponsor, who buy a spot for other women who can't afford it. So to me, I think it's, um, like I under, I totally understand why people price their courses at, you know, a few thousand dollars. That is totally their prerogative. I understand why they do it. But the average household income, household income in America is $54,000. The average person cannot afford a $1,500 course. I love the fact that you just, you know what you want to achieve with your courses and you, you know who you want to reach and you're happy with that. And I think that's what really matters. As long as you're making enough money to like make your business sustainable, then I think that's what matters. Also, yeah. And also like, you know, I have a lot of business friends and we talk numbers pretty bluntly and... I mean, my launches are not really that different from their launches They're mm-hmm. because it's a lot harder to convince somebody to spend $1,500 than it is to spend $55. Yeah. And the, the completion rate of self-paced online courses is 3%, mm-hmm. which is like, I think incredibly unethical to, to create something that has such a low completion rate. Mm-hmm. But if, if I spent $1,500 on a course and I didn't finish it, I'm never going to tell anybody because it's humiliating. Mm. But if I bought a $55 course and it was live and there was tons of accountability and I got amazing results, I will not shut up about it. Mm-hmm. And so like the people who have taken my courses and then gotten these insane results, like very regularly people buy Bank Boost, which is $55, and they bring in somewhere between two and $7,000 in the course of six weeks. And they like just shout about it from the rooftops. They ask me if they can be affiliates. They talk about it on social media without prompting. That doesn't happen when you take somebody's money for for a self-paced course that they never finish. Yep, yep. Oh, you've totally sold me on your course, by the way. It sounds brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's well, it's a whole fifty-five dollars. So it's a big. So I was also going to ask you, um, do you have any money tips uh, specifically you would give to any online business owners about how they are choosing to make or spend their money in their businesses? Um, I would say two big things are don't confuse spending money with taking action. Mm. And this applies not just to business owners, but to everybody. But I think especially business owners, like we say, I want to be better at Instagram. So then we buy a self-paced online course about Instagram And maybe we like buy um, a newer phone with a better camera and we sign up for a bunch of um, apps that require like a small monthly fee. And then we don't actually like do anything, (laughs) you know, we, we can, we think like I have purchased the Instagram course, but we don't go through the course and actually implement the suggestions. We don't like, you know, put in the time and effort to improving our photography or learning about hashtags. 
So it is incredibly common to confuse um, spending money with taking action. Mm. It's, um, I don't know if you know Susan Hyatt, but um, one of her um, taglines is don't be angry about the results you didn't get from the work you didn't do. <laughs> so I would, I would say for, for the vast majority of us, like online courses are great, but especially for super tangible, tactical things that change all the time. So like Facebook ads, Instagram strategy, you know, how to create pinnable images, that kind of stuff. Like before you buy anything, spend like 20 minutes Googling and like implement the tips that you see for free in blog posts. You can get pretty far just by doing the things that you already know that you need to do. And then once you've done all the stuff that you know you need to do with the with the equipment and knowledge that you already have, then it's time to hire a consultant. Then it's time to to take a course. But many of us, instead of, you know, putting in the work to write blog posts every week, to leave comments on other people's Instagram accounts, we would rather buy a course when really there are lots of things that we can do with the knowledge that we already have. So I would say that's number one. Um, and number two is if you can understand um, how you learn best, then you can make for sure that you are getting the support you need in a format that works for you. Mm -hmm. That's really important advice. And actually, I think sometimes it can take it can take a while, can't it? And, and a lot of money like spent on courses. Absolutely. Like I only know that stuff because I was a classroom teacher for seven years and I have a master's degree in applied linguistics. Like that's like the average human doesn't know about like kinesthetic learning or oral learners. Like that's not something that most people know. And, and it's rare that somebody, you know, that we've had someone in our life say like, you know, I can tell that you learn by doing, or I can learn that I, I can tell that in order for you to retain knowledge that you need to write it down through journaling prompts. Like most of us, that's not information that we have or that we're even necessarily like aware of. So if you can figure that out about yourself, sort of think back to any situation, any learning situation that was really effective for you. And it doesn't just have to be like business-based, like, you know, in eighth grade, did your teacher read um, some, read a book aloud to the class and you learned best? Um, or did you learn, you know, best in art class when you, you know, were manipulating clay? Think back to a time when you actually retained information and you were excited about what you were learning and see if you can find a way to um, find something similar to learn the information that you need. Mm, that's really good advice. Um, I'm going to shift gear a bit and ask you a bit about habits. I'd love to know because you have a course about habits as well. I'd love to know about some of the habits that you have found have made a big impact on building up this business. Oh, yeah. Um, well, so I have my morning habits and my pre bed habits are like almost written in stone at this point. And they are not like super related to business, but mm -hmm. obviously they really set me up yeah. um, for good work days. So in the morning, um, I do not wake up to an alarm, which is sort of, that's one of my personal barometers of success is <laughs> that I don't wake up to an alarm. Um, but I wake up sort of whenever I want to, and then I make the bed. I always make the bed. Um, and then I go downstairs and I have, um, a glass of warm water with lemon. And then I eat real breakfast, like a real actual, you know, a lot of times it's a hot breakfast that I eat at the table on a placemat. Um, and then I make a cup of decaf coffee. I actually broke my caffeine habit last time I ran habit school. And I go sit on the couch and I drink my cup of decaf while reading fiction, 
I don't want to read nonfiction. I want to read fiction. Um, and then I walk the dog. And while I'm walking the dog, I run my Roomba, which is a robot vacuum. So I come home and the house has been vacuumed. And then I get dressed. And then I check email and start using my computer. So that is my morning routine really sets me up to be like hydrated, to be in the right space mentally, to be focused and centered and not frantic. And then my pre-bed routine is that I make my, I write one thing that I'm grateful for. Um, I set an intention for the following day and then I write my to-do list for the following day. So I'm not laying in bed, you know, thinking about the stuff that I need to do. Like it's out of my brain. Um, so those are my sort of daily habits that contribute to um, that contribute to my business. The other two things that I do that have been super helpful is I have a monthly habit of going on um, a DIY writing retreat. Oh, I love it. It's so I oh my god, I will not stop telling people about it. Like it is truly the secret <laughs> to to for me. Um, so I have a very specific Airbnb that I go to 90% of the time. It is a llama farm and I think it's, they're your llamas or alpacas in rural Wisconsin. It does not have Wi-Fi. Um, so before I go, I put together, um, a Google drive folder with outlines of everything I want to write. I drive there. And for me, I specifically need to go someplace far enough away that like when I'm dry, you know, I can't just like go to a hotel down the street. It needs to like be a separate space. So like, I'm sort of taking it seriously. Mm. And then I go there and I just write for like a day and a half. I wrote my entire, my entire habit course at that Airbnb in two days. Um, and then I drive home and then that's where I write like 90% of my content is, is on my DIY writing retreats. And then the other thing I do, and I do this probably two or three times a month is I do something that I call a mutually beneficial brain pick and resource swap. Um, so I reach out to friends. Usually they're in real, they're like friends here in Minneapolis, but sometimes it's internet friends. Mm -hmm. Um, because a lot of times we'll, you know, like sort of catch up and talk about what we're working on or we will, you know, bounce ideas off of each other. But these calls and copy dates are specifically to very strategically like ask for what we need. And it's very specifically like you talk about what you need and then I talk about what I need. So it sort of forces me because that's not something I'm really great at. I'm not great at asking for help or great at asking for connections. So I mm. did this to like make myself accountable because I am like, I will introduce you to everyone I know. And then when you're like, well, how can I help you? I'm like, I, I don't know. I mean, whatever. I mean, it's fine. So, so I, <laughs> I did this specifically to sort of hold myself accountable. And I tell the, the people I'm meeting with ahead of time, like, Hey, this is, it's, this is a mutually beneficial brain pick and resource swap. So the way it works is you tell me everything that you're working on, everything you need advice about connections, you need introductions, you need, and then I'm going to do the same. And so when I'm meeting with um, with my friends and with all these people, I have a giant Google Doc where I'll have like a date and a name. Um, and then I'll just have bullet points of like Liz Johnson is looking for the following things. Liz Johnson is good at the following things. And, you know, so I have a huge Google Doc that's probably like eight pages deep with all sorts of people's information. So then when I'm meeting with you and you say like, you know, um, I need a good graphic designer who is based in the UK, I can just control F within the Google doc and say like, Oh, Nate told me about this person that they, that they use. And I've only been doing that. I've only been having these, these, um, calls and these coffee dates since the beginning of the year. And it's just insane. The number of connections that have come from them. I've gotten speaking gigs. I've gotten, I've gotten, I think 
six speaking gigs. I'm in negotiations with six different companies for sponsored Instagram content. It, I mean, it's just mind blowing what happens when you ask for what you need. Oh, that's amazing. I love that tip. I was going to ask you how, how has it benefited you? And you've already answered that. That's brilliant. Yeah. So those are, so I would say the, the DIY writing retreat, the, that's a monthly habit. And then these coffee dates, which are sort of like a every other week habit. And they've both been incredibly, incredibly helpful to my business. Yeah. Yeah. And that DIY writing retreat, I mean, I'm desperate to do that. I mean, I've got a baby at the moment, so it's not, um, it's not easy, but I'm going to do it. And cause I'm guessing even w- with or without a baby, I'm guessing it's something that when you first do it feels a bit indulgent or like, Oh, can yes. I really do this and remove myself from my day to day life? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I've got to yeah, do but it. It's incredibly effective. And I don't know how taxes work um, where you guys are, but in the States that's tax deductible because yes. it's a business expense. Yeah. So even though like, obviously you have to spend the money to get the Airbnb or the hotel, it is a tax deductible business expense, which can make it feel slightly less indulgent. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a way to like talk yourself into it sometimes. <laughs> yes. Oh, for sure. Like it's a business expense. I'm allowed. Yep. Yep. Oh, right. Well, that was brilliant. Anyway, I'm going to ask you a couple of parting questions before we finish up. So the first one is what inspires you? Oh, gosh. Um, I think that anyone who is living a life, who has put in the time and effort to figure out how to live a life that works for them inspires me. And sometimes that looks like, you know, a stay at home mom who has three kids. Sometimes that's somebody who knows that marriage and family isn't right for them and they work in international aid and they live in other countries. You know, somebody sometimes that's somebody who's an artist or somebody who's a criminal defense attorney. It's anyone who has really thought about what they want out of life and is doing it and pursuing it in a way that is um, authentic to them and who they are. Yes, yes. Um, Second question, what do you want people to remember about you? Oh my gosh. Um, (laughs) I think I want people to, I, I would hope that when people read the things that I write or take my classes, that they feel that I have given them accessible usable, implementable tools and strategies um, to make life good and to and to make a life that that works for them. Oh, that's great. And last question. Um, where can people go to find out more about you and what you do? Um, it's all housed on my website, which is yesandyes.org. Um, and you can find me on all social media, Yes and Yes blog. I'm very active on Instagram stories. Um, so if you want to see what I'm up to on a sort of daily basis and, you know, get tips for for your business or for travel or for money management or habits or any of that stuff, I'm on Instagram stories all the time um, at Yes and Yes blog. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Creatively Human. If you have a moment, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review the podcast. It really does make a difference. And if you'd like to carry on the conversation or ask a question for a future Q&A episode, there are three ways to connect with me. On the Facebook group, on Instagram, at Ruth Poundwhite, or my personal favourite, my behind-the-scenes newsletter. Just go to ruthpoundwhite.com forward slash newsletter to subscribe. And keep doing what you're doing, because your work really does matter.